To understand our current times, we need to understand history. We need to see the good, the bad, and the beautiful of the story of our salvation. That's what we're going to talk about today on Crisis Point. Hello, I'm Eric Sammons, your host and editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. Before we get started, I just want to encourage people to smash that like button, to subscribe to the channel, let other people know about it. We really appreciate all the subscribers we've been adding recently. Uh, also, you can follow us on social media at Crisis Mag uh, and subscribe to our email newsletter. Just go to crisismagazine.com. And there's a form there. You can put your email address and you will get uh, our articles sent to you on your email uh, every morning, which is great. And speaking of our articles, we have a contributing editor of Crisis Magazine today, Joseph Pierce. He is the author of numerous literary studies, including Literary Converts, The Quest for Shakespeare and Shakespeare on Love, as well as biographies on Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, whose birthday we celebrated this week, uh, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton and others. He's a general editor of the Ignatius Critical Edition series, and he is also the author of this new book, The Good, the Bad, the Beautiful, History in Three Dimensions, which is an excellent book. You can tell from my bookmark, I will admit I haven't finished it yet, but I am reading it. I read it every morning. I read a chapter every morning. It's a perfect book for that. So welcome to the program, Joseph. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I should add to your bio, too, when I have you on. Joseph is one of my favorite authors. Bar not. You, 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 the work you do is great. I always love having you on and talking about this. And I was very excited to get this book as well. Um, it, it, you know, it's very good. And uh, and so I just think I want to just start off kind of asking, you know, there's, there's various church history books out there. There's I've emphasized on this podcast before, in fact, just this week I did, how Catholics need to know history. Why is it important to know history? We all know the quote, you know, you're, you're doomed to repeat it. But why is it actually important for us to know history, specifically as Catholics? Well, there, 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 there are a few reasons. The most, in the broadest sense of the word, uh, if we don't know where we've been, we don't know where we are. And if we don't know where we are, we don't know where we're going. So at, at, at the broadest level, that's why everybody needs to understand the past, both their own past and the collective past, which we call history. But the, the, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was that many of us fall into the progressive trap even if we consider ourselves to be anti-progressive, um, in the sense that you know, we buy into the idea that because of technology, things are going to get better and better in the future, or if you don't like it, worse and worse, but it's going to happen, right? There's an inexorable process where we are progressing through science into some sort of age in the future, which is either a golden age or a doomsday age or whatever. But in actual fact, what history is, is human. First and foremost, right? It's human. So we have to understand who we are. And when we understand who we are, we see actually history is not a, pro a progress or a regress uh, in one definite direction. It's a tapestry woven of the three aspects of what it is to be a, a human person, which are the good, the bad, and the beautiful. By which I mean the good is homo viator, a traveling man or a pilgrim man, man on a pilgrimage, man on a quest. The purpose of life is to get to heaven. So everybody who's trying to get to heaven uh, is, is on, on that quest for heaven, is homo viator. They are either the saints or at least those who are trying to be saints um, or working at it. Um, and then, but against that, you have the bad, which is the absence of the good um, in Augustinian terms. And that's homo superbus, proud man. Uh, and that this is the man who refuses the quest who refuses the journey, uh, uh, refuses to be the pilgrim to heaven and wants to go his own way uh, instead, doing his own thing. 
Um, and then the third is, is anthropos, the Greek word for marriage, which means, in, in, according to Plato, he who turns up in wonder, he who looks up in wonder. And we, to see beauty, to see the kiss of the life of God's presence in the beauty of creation, but also to be the Imago Dei, to be creative ourselves, to actually to, to, to make beautiful things uh, in emulation of the beautiful things made by our creator. So the good, the bad and the beautiful. And of course, these three aspects of who we are, it actually is in here. So that struggle is going on in each of us as individuals. And if that's the case, it's going on in each human society from the beginning to the end, which is why, you know, we have these three uh, threads running through every century. And I've tried to have you know, one chapter for each century, but showing those three threads running through. So hist history should be seen as a, ta a, a, a weird woven tapestry. In other words, a tapestry woven by God's providence of what it is to be human, not a progress towards uh, some age in the future. Yeah, so I, the, the, the book is laid out very easily. Like I, what I do is I just read a chapter every morning. I just, uh, after I finish praying, I'm like, okay, I pick this up. I read a chapter and it's very interesting like that. And I want to talk about some centuries in a minute, but I would like you to kind of describe maybe how the thread of good is throughout history, but also then the thread of bad and the thread of beautiful. Like it, you know, the, the book for reading purposes is split in the centuries. But of course, that's not how actual history works. It just it just continues to happen. But what is that thread of of good and that thread of bad, and thread of beautiful? Like, what are the commonalities that just keep on happening over and over again throughout history? Well, um, the, the book was inspired largely um, by the words of Pope Benedict XVI, and I, and I actually quote him at the beginning in the prologue um that ultimately the only defense of the church are the saints that she's inspired and the great works of art that she's inspired um so uh, in other words the good and the beautiful and so we see basically the template of all of history i think laid out in the gospel uh we have uh christ and his followers and then we have the rest who are not his followers who are the majority uh and of his own followers um we have the judas um, so what we have, we have Christ says that we have to take up our cross. Voluntarily doing that is to become homo viato, pilgrim man, following Christ uh, on the Via Dolorosa of life. Um, but failure to do that makes us the bad. Now we can do that, we can be Caesar. In other words, we could be secular. Or we could be Judas. We could be the heretic or the corrupt person within the church, within the mystical body of Christ, who's who's causing uh, chaos and corruption from within. So in every generation, we have those who are trying to be saints and becoming saints. Uh, they're the good. We have, we have the bad, which is both in terms of those who choose the world, uh, uh, choose the city of man over the city of God. Um, and, and, then, and, and then we have the Judas, to those who uh, are corrupted by the world, even though they are within the church so that's what we see in the bad and in every generation we have beautiful works of art architecture visual arts music uh, literature uh, and these um shine forth the life of christ in the goodness truth and beauty of what they are and you talk about the beautiful and i think that's something that when i first got the book i was kind of like i didn't really see that like what you know the good and the bad obviously of course, there's the you know the good, bad, and the ugly that they talk about you know from the movie, and and but it's like the good, the bad, and the beautiful, 
And so the beautiful, the importance of that, I think, wouldn't, well, would you agree that you can kind of see it in that sometimes there have been movements both inside and outside the church to kill the beautiful. You see it obviously with the iconoclasm of in the first millennium in like the, I think, seventh, eighth century, something like that. You see it in the iconoclasm of the Protestant Reformation. You see it in the iconoclasm of today. And so what would you say that like, what is that inherent? What is the sin of ugliness? I guess is the right, right way to put it. And why is there this attack on the beautiful? Yeah, I think what we need to do is to see the beautiful as, as part of the triune splendor of God. So um, you know, when, the, when the Greek philosophers talked about the good, the true and the beautiful, they were, they were already getting, getting an inkling of the Trinity because these three, those distinct, were inseparable. Uh, that The good and the true is always beautiful. The true and the beautiful is always good. Um, that, 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 that these, three, these three things are um, triune. So therefore, they, they shine forth. Uh, the beauty of God um, and the goodness of God, the truth of God. So I believe uh, that when Jesus says, uh, I am the way, the truth and the life, he is actually saying, I am the good, the true and the beautiful. Because um, obviously goodness is, is, is love. It's laying down our lives for the beloved. Uh, that's goodness, virtue. Uh, true, uh, the true is, is the logos. So God is love, God is caritas, or agape is, is, is the good. But, but the true is logos, reason. God is the reason. All reason ultimately emanates from him, and all uh, true use of reason leads us back to him. Uh, and the beautiful is the life. So the thing about the beautiful is that the, the, the beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. That's relativistic nonsense. The beauty is in the, in the thing beheld, but we do have to have eyes to behold it. Um, so there's something about that the, the, the beauty of something is the life in it. So it's not, not talking about um, biological life here. A sunrise is, has life in it because of its beauty. It, it lifts us up. It magnifies our soul. Um, but it doesn't have biological life. So there's the beauty uh, uh, that's in the life of the thing. And then we have to be alive to that life ourselves in order to be kissed by that beauty, to have that relationship with it. So the, the presence of beauty to be perceived requires the life of the thing beheld and the life of the beholder. So I do see when Christ says, I'm the way, the truth and the life, he is saying I'm the good, the true and the beautiful. So we can't separate them. And what are some, like in what ways is this beauty expressed throughout history? Because obviously how in the second century, uh, very different than perhaps the 10th century or the 20th century, but what are some examples of how beauty, particularly you know Catholic beauty, how is it how is it, how is it expressed throughout history? Yeah, well, what, at, the, at the beginning of the book, I sort of I, I reflect what Chesterton does uh, in his book *The Everlasting Man*. The first half of that book is the man in the cave, and the second part is the god in the cave. Um, uh, but the, the, what Chesterton says about the caveman. He says, what do we know about the caveman? The only thing we really know about the caveman is the fact he's an artist. Um, the only evidence we have of the caveman is the fact that he drew uh, pictures on the walls of the caves. Um, and uh, Chester was trained as an artist, said are actually very good pictures, sets of movement, set that what have sets of form. Well, the earliest Christian art, where, where are the earliest Christians forced into being? In the catacombs, right? So the, the, the earliest remaining Christian art is the art to be found 
in the catacombs. Uh, and, we, and we know that there's music in the early liturgy. We know we know we know from the from the history of Gregorian chant that it has its roots in the Jewish temple. So the the earliest liturgy of the church in the first century would have had beautiful music uh, associated with it. So the beauty is something that accompanies uh, history um, a, 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 along with goodness. Um, uh, and truth, and of course, the absence of those things, which is the bad. Yeah, and I think, and I really do think that the, like I mentioned, these iconoclastic movements, they really are, uh, they're, they're evil attacks because beauty, a lot of, a lot of converts over the centuries have said beauty is one of the things that brings them to the truth, brings them to Christ, is, is seeing the beauty. And then when, so when you see, beauty uh like the utilitarian type of of uh architecture we have today where everything is built just like for for usage and not not for beauty at all it really does undercut the, the beauty of christ the beauty of the gospel and and it's it's in a way it's inhuman i mean because like you said that the first cavemen there there we see their art it's almost interesting that that is a art is a sign of rationality and a lot of people think of rationality and art is like in opposition you know that you have your math people you have your art people and they're not like they're, they're completely opposites but it's actually art that proves that it's not an animal that, that we're dealing with that, that it's actually a rational being um and so like i guess just touch on that a little bit more because i, I feel like that is one of the things about this book that is that is unique in that a lot of people tell a story of history the good and the bad but the beauty is really that that aspect that um that, that brings out kind of the uniqueness of cat like Catholic beauty is I mean because obviously there's beauty outside the Catholic Church there can be but what is that beauty that Catholic beauty that you're really focusing on in the book? Yeah, so basically, you know, Chesterton says that art is the signature of man. You know, chimpanzees do not paint pictures, nor do they compose music. Right? There's something uh, that's about about beauty and creativity and the and the, the, the love of the beautiful and the creation of the beautiful which is divine. It's part of the Imago Dei. Uh, in other words, that, you know, how do we know the, the, what is the image of God in us? Well, it's what's in us that's not in any of the other creatures, right? And, and, and obviously the ability to reason um, uh, and, and uh, the, the, the ability to, to, to love, to, to rationally choose to lay down our lives for the, for the beloved, but also the ability to, to enjoy beauty and to do beauty, whether it's playing a musical instrument or Composing a piece of music, um, so or admiring a work of art or painting, uh, you know. So it, 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 this is this is part of the divine image in who we are. And if we want to understand human history, we have to understand the Imago Dei, you know, who we are, and that includes those who love beauty, who do beauty, who are creative, as God Himself is uh, uh, a creator. Um, no, that's why you know with, with talking. Tolkien's creation story from Middle Earth, God, the one God, pre presents to the archangels the great music. God is presented as the composer of the cosmos. And you know, the ancient philosophers talk about the music of the spheres. Well, that's not, you know, Boethius, uh, for instance, in, in his book, De Musica, you know, he's not talking about uh, music we can hear. He's talking about the harmony, the beauty, uh, in the cosmos itself, that the music of the spheres, the movement of the stars, 
uh, is like a dance, right? So, so and then you have the musica, uh, uh, the musica um, uh, uh, of, the, of the cosmos, musica naturala, and then you have the musica humana, the music sinas, the music in human souls. Right? We are something which is meant to be harmonious. We can make, we can become discordant, but through sin. But we're meant to be harmonious. There's the music in us. And then the, the, the third type of music, Prometheus says, musica instrumentalis. That's when we incarnate this music in such a way we can hear it, right, by moving sound waves, as we would now say. And one other very quick thing, Eric, as well, you know, about this, there's no, there's no opposition between beauty and reason. The, the greatest scientists have to use imagination. Uh, mathematics is the use of the imagination. To uh, to innovate, right? To to, to discover uh, things for the first time, um, you need to have an imagination to do that. If you don't have your eyes opened in wonder, which is necessary for the seeing of, of goodness, truth, and beauty, you will not be uh, able to be a good scientist either. Right. Now, I've read a lot of history books, church history books. I've read a lot of lives of saints. And one of my common complaints of them all, just about, is that they underplay the bad. <laughs> they, they, I mean, I get it on some level because, especially some lives of the saints, you're trying to uplift and and, and show. And I, I'm not saying that's a wrong thing to do, but I do feel like it makes it more difficult when we have the bad going on now, or whatever now might be, whoever it is, you know, that we are like, oh, but it used to be so great. And you make a point that every single century you have you have bad. Now, one thing I want to ask you about that is, do you see a relationship between the good and the bad as it plays out in history? What I mean by that is sometimes it seems to me that a person's greatest strengths are also ends up being his downfall or, or his flaws. And do you see like when you when you when you mapped out these centuries, did you see like, oh, yeah, th this century was great on this, but it was also terrible on this, which is kind of related? Or is it more just a matter of the, whatever the, the, the evil happened to be at the time, whatever the good happened to be at the time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think the key thing is that uh, the same pattern is in all centuries in, in, at all times. Uh, but but it may manifest itself slightly differently. So uh, give an example. You know, you mentioned about you know the the the, 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 the so-called tragic flaw that the, the the hero's greatest strength can also be uh, his downfall. But it's also true that our downfalls can become our greatest strengths. In other words, many many people have become converts to the faith because they hit rock bottom uh, by following some addictive habit, behavior, what ha what have you. In other words, the crucifixion is necessary before we can experience the resurrection. So, um, so the, the, the God can and does throughout history bring good out of evil. Um, so um, that's one thing you have to know. But I'll give a few examples here to illustrate what I'm trying to get at. There, there was a historian called uh, Professor Walsh. I don't think he was a priest. He might have been. Uh, taught at Fordham, historian. Wrote a book called um, uh, The Greatest, The Thirteenth. The greatest of centuries you know his argument was this was the, as good as going to get the, the golden age in the past the 13th century is the, the, the magnificent church basically triumphant on earth and you know you look at that century 
and, and you, you're good, absolutely. The, the, the rise of Gothic architecture, the founding of the Franciscan order, the founding of the Dominican order, although we have to remember why were they necessary? Because of the corruption in the church at the beginning of the 13th century. Um, uh, but then at the same time, of course, then the rise of the opening of the universities, the rise of scholasticism, St. Albert the Great, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, you know, these wonderful philosophers that, are, you know, that, that, that show us how faith and reason are one. So, yeah, wonderful century. But it's also the century of the Crusades. It's the century in which a Christian army sacks, pillages Constantinople. It's uh, the century in which Christian army... Uh, besieges a Christian city in Croatia and, and pillages it, um, uh, ignoring the Pope threatening to, to, to excommunicate them in order to do it. Um, the rise of Islam uh, is, is, is continuing. Uh, and then, right, so the golden, golden age, 13th century, at the beginning of the 14th century, you know, we have three different people claiming to be Pope at the same time. The Pope's in exile in Avignon. The Pope's not even in Rome. Um, so, you know, the so-called greatest of centuries, yeah, there's great stuff happening, but there's a lot of wicked stuff happening, you know, and, and, and what I say as well, you know, people, what, what are my favorite centuries? I actually give surprising answers. I love the 16th century. Um, now, people say, well, what? That's the Protestant Reformation, right? That's the rupture. It's when we lose a large body of the Christians, you know, become heretics. How is that? Well, because that Protestant rupture gives birth to the Catholic revival, the Catholic restoration, sometimes called the Council Reformation, but that doesn't really do it, do it justice. The Council of Trent, the founding of the Jesuits, St. Teresa of Avila, um, St. John of the Cross, the Discounts Carmelites, the, the renewal of the, of, of the monastic orders, it was all happening at that time, of course, in beautiful polyphony. Uh, some of the greatest sacred music ever, ever written is from that, the William Shakespeare at the end of the 16th century. So, you know, the, the worst of times, the best of times. And another favorite of mine is the 19th century. Now, in 1800, um, the, basically the Pope's a prisoner of Napoleon. He's taken prisoner from Rome and he dies in France, a prisoner of Napoleon. The previous Pope, uh, under pressure from secular rulers, banned the Jesuit, Jesuit order, which is basically the only part of the church that had any fight and spunk in it at the time. Uh, and the Pope himself dissolves the Jesuits. Um, yeah, in 1800, you think it's all over, right? That the Catholic Church is finished. And then the 19th century is a great time of revival. And if you see, you know, the number of Catholics in the United States uh, in 1900 compared with 1800, the number of Catholics in the UK in 1900 compared to 1800. You know, then, then you had the Catholic literary revival, these great writers from you know, Newman and then Chesterton and Belloc and Tolkien. You know, so the, 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 this... Catholic revival begins in the 19th century, probably you could say with the Romantic movement, neo-medievalism, the Gothic revival, the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, all these wonderful things in the, in the 19th century. Um, when you, Chesterton said that the church has died many times and has risen again from the dead because she worships a God who knows the way out of the grave. Yeah, it, it is interesting that uh, an Englishman would pick the 16th century, considering what happened in England at that time, but like you said, it's more like, I feel like like some centuries are more extreme than others, not necessarily better or worse, but more extreme. And the 16th century had that because you had the depths of, of terribleness, which is the Protestant Reformation. But then, like you said, you, you have some of the, I mean, 
when most people think of the greatest saints of if most people name like the top 10 their top 10 greatest saints or top 20 greatest saints a lot of them will, a, a disproportionate will come from the 16th century yeah and it, so it's like an extreme century i also one of the things i noticed in 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 looking at the history is i feel like like you mentioned like you, you kind of reject the progressive idea of history that we're going towards this nirvana or whatever and you know we have to be on the right side of history all that crap would you say though that in some way not completely that there is a certain uh like circular nature to history or spiraling or something like that in the sense that it does seem like sometimes the, the church goes great get, you know things are going well and then it kind of crashes so like this 13th century we have the, the situation with Francis and Dominic, St. Thomas Aquinas, all this, the classicism, the med, uh, mendicants, all that stuff. And then we crash and burn almost, it seems like, in the great uh, Western schism. You have that also in kind of re reverse a little bit because in the 10th century, which, I mean, it's usually ranked the worst for, for the at least the papacy, if not for just the church. And then it leads to the 11th century in which has the great schism, so it's still bad stuff. But then all of a sudden we have the big revival. Would you say there's a circular nature or is that kind of also a, a bad way to look at it? Yeah, I, I think, I think we, 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 we can't see history as circular because it's a tapestry and it tells a story. Um, so uh, there's a story to be told. So, uh, and, it, and, it, and it has a beginning and it will have an end. Uh, we, are, we are destined to be a small part of the picture uh, in time. But this is the other aspect. We have to see history within uh, the context of eternity. In other words, we have to see time uh, within the context of eternity. So for God, and this is crucial, for God there is no past and there is no future. God's omnipresence means not just that he's present everywhere, though he is. I think in a much deeper sense, it means everything is present to him. So the whole of history is present to God and is being played out in his presence. And when we understand history in that sense, um, it, it, then we can certainly see it as something which is all present, right? So the past is present to us. The past is actually more present to us than the future because where we are now, this moment, we can't be anywhere else because of the past, right? Um, so the present is like a mathematical point. Chesterton says somewhere that it's it's so sharp, you know, that when you try to live in the present, it's it's something similar to sitting down on a pin, right? So, so, so the, the, the present is something, as soon as we even perceive it, it's the immediate past. So we live in the past. We have nowhere else to live. The future exists to God in his presence. But to us, it's a figment of our imagination. In other words, you know, I, I may know what I'm going to be doing an hour from now, and I probably will, right? In terms of all probability, doing what I think I'm going to be doing an hour from now. But what am I? What do I, will I be doing three years from now? I have no idea whatsoever. So you know, so the, so the future for us is nothing but a figment of our imaginations. So um, the past is the reality in which we actually live. Therefore, we have to understand it if we're going to know where we're going. Okay, so I want to take it a little bit like, what's the purpose of learning history? What's the purpose of this? Our present? Uh, how does our past help form our present? Uh, one of the things that um, we talk about a lot at crisis is the current crisis in the church and in the world. And I and I we're always trying to help Catholics in particular navigate it, understand it, uh, not lose their faith, uh, all those type of things. And I've always said 
one of the things I've kind of hammered on is like, we, you have to know history. And I don't know if I've always explained it that great, but like, how would you say like your knowledge of history and like, for example, even doing research on this book and what have you, how does it help you today when, you know, some scandal comes up, corruption, whatever the latest thing it, it happens in the church that that has caused real people to lose their faith? Uh, uh, you know, it, it's not something to take lightly. How does this help you or does it help you uh, kind of navigate what we're going through today? Yeah, again, a, a great question. I, I think that the first thing um, that, 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 that I try to do in that book is by having one separate chapter for each century and showing the good, the bad and the beautiful in each century is that we can see, if you like, the presence of God uh, in each century, and each century being present to him. We also see the absence of God in the bad, because that's what it means, turning your back on God, right, refusing him. Um, which we have a right to do um, because he's given us freedom, which is necessary to love. So, you know, um, that when we see see history in, in that context, we can look and say, okay, we're living in dark times, 2024, right? 1924, we just had World War One, right? A number of people killed in that just, you know, beggar's belief. Seven years earlier, was well, just over six years earlier, there was the Bolshevik Revolution. The rise of the of, of uh, um, radical secular fundamentalist atheism, anti Christianity, the the, uh, the the fascist regime had just taken taken power in Italy. Uh, Mussolini would would flatten most of Rome to build roads for fast cars and tanks and, and military parades. Um, and then, of course, the Nazis were on the rise, and within ten years, will be in power. And within within fifteen years, we got we got a, a second world war. So are we living in dark times today? Yes, we are living in dark times today. Uh, are they the darkest ever? No, no, they're dark. They're not the darkest ever. You know, uh, and if you read it, do the same thing. You can, this is what I try to do. Put a blindfold on and throw a dart into uh, any century in history, any time in history, and you land it somewhere. You'll see good things happening. You'll see saints at work. You'll see beautiful art, but you'll also see wickedness. You'll see secularism, the power of the world being used against uh, uh, the, the, the forces of good, forces of church in, in, in every generation, in every century. So that's why it's, it's valuable. And also to remember that this we are in the church militant, which is the smallest part of the church. The largest part of the church, we can be fairly sure, is the church triumphant in heaven. Right, all of us are called to get there, and all we have to do is to be good and faithful servants and good and faithful warriors, uh, church militant, milus Christi, soldiers of Christ, for our tour of active duty, right? And then we get off. And if we're good and faithful servants, we get off, we go, we, we, we go probably via purgatory, but that's a one-way street to heaven, right? So why should any Christian who has authentic faith in Jesus Christ and his presence in history and eternity, ever be tempted to, to despair. I mean, really, if, if people are losing their faith, it's because they don't have it. <laughs> you know, because if, if you think that the power of the devil is so, is so, is so powerful that he, he's going to uh, destroy the power of Christ, well, then you don't have faith in Christ. Right. Well, one of the things, uh, obviously it's topical today, is the role of the Pope in the church. And it almost seems like in a way 
that pope, the popes in, in history have been almost an incarnation of the, the kind of the church history in the sense of the good, the bad, and the beautiful. And so when you were looking at your history, and you, you mentioned a number of popes in here, obviously the, the, the good, the, the, the St. Leo the Greats, the St. Gregory the Greats. You know, I didn't, I'm just going to take an aside here. I did not know the story of St. Nicholas the Great. I knew who St. Nicholas the Great was. I feel like I'm well-versed in, in who he was. I did not know the story of him defending marriage. So I'm just going to stop my question I was going to ask. I just want you to tell the story of St. Nicholas the Great and how he defended marriage. Can you can you tell that story? Because I read that and I was like, I didn't know that one. Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're asking me to get uh, down deep and dirty and something I wrote over a year ago. I okay. mean, <laughs> that's, so, but actually, tell you what, I mean, I could do it, but I, I would be playing telephone with myself from, from a year ago. Why don't you tell us? Because you've just recently read it. Yeah, right. Exactly. There we go. I, I, I put you on the spot there. It's very good. But I want to pull it up here because basically what happens is that, you know, St. Saint, Saint Nicholas the Great is one of only three popes who kind of have that moniker of great right after after his name. And one of the things he's known for is he uh, he was the pope during the time of Photius. And, and so there was a lot of debate over um, the East West split and he helped bring it back together. Um, and so what I, I remember was with um, Nicholas was, okay, here we go. I want to make sure I get right too. So the emperor basically um, of, of, of uh, what's his name? Lothair, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, L-O-T-H-A-I-R. He got divorced and remarried. And, you know, let's be honest in history, a lot of rulers, a lot of kings, a lot of monarchs, emperors, they get divorced and remarried. And often church officials have given them annulments. And let's just assume they were legitimate or something like that. But it's not uncommon in, in history. I mean, it's very common today for just individual, normal people to get annulments. But back over history, you see that a lot. In fact, I'm reading something about um, 11th, 12th century. And like, I think it was one of the Henry II. I can't remember one of the... the Kings of England, you know, was got divorced, remarried. No, it was his wife, Eleanor. That's who it was. Anyway, sorry. And so basically, uh, he he got divorced and he married, uh, I think his mistress or somebody like that didn't matter. And and the Pope wouldn't give him an annulment. So literally, his brother, you know, marched on Rome and laid siege to the Pope. And uh, and so like basically, this is like pretty significant pressure on the Pope. That because it's a political thing, people need to understand. Obviously, it's a moral question, and so the Pope's looking like that. But Nicholas basically refused to back down, so he could have died all in defense of marriage and and and, and what marriage was. And he he was either could have been he could have been made a martyr. In the end, the emperor who was siege was like, "Oh crap, I'm not going to get this guy to do what I want," and and so he backed down. And so basically, what happened was Nicholas stood up for marriage. For for and, and against this this invalid marriage that basically this man had married somebody you know married somebody else, and so I did not know that story, but that's just an example of a pope. Of of I mean obviously he's called the great for a reason, but I I, I just think it was a great example that we can look to. But tell us so going back to the, the 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 main point though, how have popes basically represented the good, the bad, and the beautiful? over the past 2000 years and how can that help us kind of understand the papacy itself in in that context yeah so i, I again the as you as you rightly say we see the humanity of the papacy so we do see saints we see the good popes uh we see uh 
bad popes, uh, and there are many of them. Um, we see popes that struggle, some of them that might um, uh, not necessarily be saints, but nonetheless are courageous in defending the faith. Um, so, uh, you know, if you look at the golden age, so-called, which I've already disputed, you know, the 13th century, you know, who's writing right at the end of that, the beginning of the 14th century, immediately after it? Well, Dante, arguably the greatest writer who ever lived. And he's putting heaps of popes and priests in hell, right? Now, we, you know, we can be uh, shocked by that, and we I think we probably should be. Um, uh, but the point is that, you know, this is in the high Middle Ages, this, this acknowledgement of the fact that the, that the popes have great responsibility and if they, if they don't live up to that responsibility, they betray that responsibility uh, to be good and faithful servants, servants of the servants, right, of God, um, then they are in, they, 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 their souls are imperiled. They, they can go to hell. Are there, are, there, are there popes in hell? I mean, it's not for me to send anybody to hell, right, or, or to judge any individual person's soul because I can't read their soul. God does that. But, you know, are there popes in hell? I think it's very likely that there are. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing that, that, that's got us a little bit confused is we've just come out, out of a, a golden age of the papacy in many ways. You know, it's very unusual to have a string of good popes for about 200 years, which is effectively what we've had since the early 19th century, um, uh, right up to, to this century, right? We've had, we've had a string of really, really good popes, and that's unusual. So, you know, it seems that we seem to expect every pope is going to is, is going to be a saint, which has never been the case in history, that every pope is a saint. And I think the, another problem is that, 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 that St. John Paul II was so charismatic. Uh, and, and many people began to see uh, the papacy in the light of John Paul II. In other words, every pope's going to be like John Paul II. No, right? So John Paul II had his own charism. It worked for him. Uh, he helped bring down communism, etc., because of what he did, what he said. But the Benedict XVI is not John Paul II, right? So uh, he has his own way of doing things. So um, I think we have to see the papacy again in the light of history and not expect every pope to be a saint, not expect every pope to be good, uh, expect that there to be occasional bad pope because it happens, has happened, and presumably will continue to happen. Yeah, I think that's I, I would even argue that we've had basically uh, decent and, and good popes since the since the 16th century. I mean, there was a run even longer than 200 years, because if you look at like since the time of maybe Pius V, who is the, the last pope who was a saint for a long time. But then after that, there was none that were like, I mean, I'm not saying they're all great or anything like that, but none that were like super scandalous or anything like that. They basically all kind of did their job and some better than others. And, and then you had a few high points like a, a, a Pius X or something like that. But but essentially, though, it was they weren't a problem. Uh, and, and But yet you look, obviously, I mean, 10th century is the most obvious, the pornocracy of, of the papacy then where where and, and you, you write about that well in there. And I think, though, the 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 important thing to remember i think with with both the popes and just in in history is i don't um you keep an even keel in the sense that yes there's good and yes there's bad and this is just the human condition and there's beautiful and it's not like oh my gosh the the, the sky is falling or like in like you're i mean i'm a little bit surprised but i think it's great how you're kind of saying the 13th century yes obviously there's good in it but it, it's somewhat uh, revisionist to act like it was just this perfect 
moment of Christendom. And that we all just, that's the ideal we have to strive for. Really, it was just, it had very good, but a lot of bad too. Um, so I think that, I think that's good. Is there anything else though that you think um, just from history, like kind of uh, doing the book and just like your own knowledge of history that, that kind of uh, helps us to understand today and really understand the future, kind of like what we can look forward to? Because I think that's one reason we look to the past is to help look to the future. And like you said, we can't know it, but how does it kind of help us at least to kind of go forward? Yeah, that 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 that's um, obviously important. We 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 need to know and understand the past in order to understand where we are, in order to understand the present and where we're going. So, insofar as we can know the future at all, just to, to at least be able to, you, you, you can you can if you like plot a line from the past. We can see certain things happen. This sort of thing happens, and this sort of things happened in the past. What happened as a consequence of this thing happening? So, for instance, moral decadence. Moral decadence always leads ultimately to anarchy and then anarchy ultimately leads to a tyrant because people want someone to, to, to just to put an end to the anarchy so the strong man comes up and takes over so that, that those sort of patterns uh, you can see happening in history and so we can we see that those patterns happening now the problem is I, mean, I deliberately stopped in the at the end of the 20th century because it's a it's myopia right that the closer we things get to us the more blurred it becomes because we can't really detach ourselves from it and so i you know i don't really want to start sort of talking about the history of the last 20 years because you know we can't really see it in perspective you know we have to get look back and get get that critical distance between us and the past in order to be able to see it in some sort of objective, coherent, cohesive sense. So, you know, I, I think it's dangerous to be uh, to be uh, trying to understand uh, the present uh, uh, in a way that we can understand the past. We can see the past in focus. We can focus on it. We can see it clearly. We can look back and look at the whole landscape of the 20th century and see what happened. You can see what... Well, no, the, so the Russian Revolution happens when 1924, 100 years ago, people believed that communism was going to co conquer the world. And one of the reasons that Nazism and fascism rose is people thought they had to choose. Right? You have, you're either going to have a Marxist future or we're going to have a fascist future. You've got to take sides here. And what, where, was the, where was the sanity to be found? In the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is social teaching. The Catholic Church is moral teaching. Uh, it's political philosophy. So, um, you know, the, the point is that in 1924, we couldn't see that the, the, the fall of the Soviet Empire. We can't see that. We, we, can, we can see it now because we look back. So we can look at the situation we're in now uh, and, and, and think, oh, that's it. The communists have taken the world. Uh, it's all over. You know, modernists have taken over the church. It's all over. Well, sorry, we're too close. It's too messy. We don't know what the future will hold, except we do know if we have faith in jesus christ that the gates of hell will not prevail we do know that right it's why it's it's what they call you know the black swan events where you just can't predict them and they change history and there's just literally nobody can predict them that's the whole point of why it calls that and so like i think that's something that we often forget because i do think we just think we think in linear terms we look at like let's say the last 10 years last 20 years we look at that direction we say okay it's going to continue like that but of course, one problem is we're not looking at 100 years, 200 years like that. And also, it's just 
it doesn't work like that. It's not linear. It just because it's going this direction right now does not mean that's it's inevitably going to go in that direction. It's kind of like you said, the progressive uh, view of history is also kind of the flip side of that is having, and I think some Catholics, we fall into this. And I say we, cause I can too, is a kind of a negative view of history. That's just going to get worse. It just, you know, progressive say it's only getting better. And, but sometimes I think we can kind of say, oh, it's only going to get worse, but I don't think that's true either. Um, because, you know, obviously God, as you said, is always present. Now, one, one final question I want to ask you, and it's kind of funny because I, you know, I, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't ask this, but I don't care because it's my podcast. I ask whatever I want. Uh, I did notice that there seemed to be a number of instances in which English history is is brought out, which I think I can forgive you being the, who as you you are the author of the book. You can talk about whatever you want. And me being uh, the person I am and loving English history, I, of course, enjoyed it. So I just want to ask you, how how has like English Catholic history, how has it impacted the history of the Catholic Church for both for the good, the bad and the beautiful? Yeah, well, the first thing I, I would say, insofar as there is uh, a bias um, towards uh, the Anglosphere, should we say, towards England, uh, a mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. <laughs> no, um, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. It's great. But <laughs> I wrote a book called Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. That is legitimate. They're obviously the focus on England. But what that I, is a great I, book, I, by the way. Just interrupt for a second. Faith, I'm looking at it right now. I can see it on my bookshelf. Faith of Our Fathers. That is the book for uh, Catholic uh, English Catholic history uh, is a is a one volume short. You know, it, it's it's great. So just wanted to say, yeah, I love that book. Thank you, thank you, Eric. I appreciate the plug. You get ten percent on all sales. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but obviously, with with, with with the new book, the Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful: History in Three Dimensions, I am trying to be balanced and keep things perspective. Hence, the three threads, uh, and hence one chapter per century right um but also i i don't didn't want a bias to come out um and i i hope it's not too evident oh no uh, if, if i just knowing you i kind of chuckled because i was like oh you know i and i'd read faith of our fathers i think last year it wasn't that long ago so i i knew some of the things you had brought in there so but i, I yeah, am for instance uh talks about you know that uh certain stages if if uh, Alfred the Great had not defeated the, the, the Vikings, the, the Danes, uh, and England had fallen from Christendom. That would have could have you know, been terminal as regards uh, Christendom itself. The same thing, he, he, he looks at the disastrous consequences of Henry VIII and the English Reformation, uh, etc. So he certainly, Belloc was a Francophile, I mean, he was not an Anglophile. Um, so he certainly uh, sees at certain points uh, that, 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 that what happened in England was crucial to what was going to happen to Christendom uh, as a whole. So, you know, I hope I reflect that. But obviously, you play to your strengths. You know, uh, you know, I know much more about English history than I do about Polish history. So, you know, it's going to be likely that there's going to be a slight deferential nod to, to, to the knowledge I already have uh, rather than sort of scouring around for things I don't know. Yeah, and I do think, though, it, it is important to note that, you know, most of the people watching this are probably American or Canadian, which obviously has an English um, history behind it. And and we, I think we think of 
English, England as, you know, Protestant, as Anglican. You know, it's like we don't even consider that the impact it had on Catholicism, but it really was kind of the jewel of the Catholic Church for a very long time, which is what makes it so tragic what happened. Uh, but I, I did not think of that. I mean, I've read enough, a, a lot about King Alfred the Great. Uh, I, I think he's great. I mean, sorry, but I, I actually think he should be a saint. Um, but I think also, uh, I, but I did not think of that, though, the impact of him withstanding the Vikings, what that had not on just England, because obviously we know the impact on England, but then all of Christendom really had an impact. And it, it's like him, he and the century, what's it? Um, I guess that was eight. Ninth, ninth century, yeah, he and Charlemagne were kind of, uh, you know, you mentioned, I think you say great kings are, and something is the title of the chapter. And they really did kind of, were, and most people acknowledge Charlemagne, obviously his impact is immense. But King Alfred's was also very great. And of course, on, on the other flip side, King Henry VIII's was drastically, I mean, just just a, a disaster um, for, for church history in so many ways. Uh, so I, I do think it, you know, it, it's fair. I think all this stuff, I just, I, I just chuckle because I know you and I was like, like I said, I read your, your, your book, Faith of Our Fathers, but yeah, you know, you have a good balance in there. So. Eric, what, what, what uh, Chesterton said about when he, when he becoming a Catholic and he said about the Blessed Virgin Mary, he says that I'll have to warn you that anything I say on the subject uh, will be tainted by enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so obviously with me, uh, you know, up to a point, I mean, I'm an Englishman. I love my nation. I love my nation's history. That, you know that I, I, I'm and I'm a Catholic, so Catholic England is something obviously I'm very attached to. So yeah, I, I'm sure that, uh, that that the book is tainted with my enthusiasm. Yeah, and nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, so I, I just want to recommend recommend to people to uh, get the book, uh, "The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful: History in Three Dimensions." It's from uh, Ignatius Press, and I will have a link to where you can buy it um, at Ignatius. But also, I am assuming. We can buy it at your website, which I'll also have a link to your website. Uh, so why don't you also tell us about your website? But like, what what are you doing? What's I mean, we're not supposed to. We don't know the future, but what what are your plans for kind of what what's going on in the Joseph Pierce world? Well, jpierce.co is my personal website, and that's the one stop place for everything. So yes, you, you can go there and get links to purchasing all of my books, from, irrespective of the publisher, obviously Ignatius.com for this particular book, but jps.co for any of my books. But also I post three new podcasts every week uh, to it. Uh, anything I've written, such as for Crisis Magazine, anything I write for Crisis Magazine, that will go up on my website. So it's a good one-stop place. If people want to know what I'm doing as regards podcasts, what I'm writing, the books I've published, um, just go to jps.co and it's all there at your fingertips. So it's jpierce.co, not .com, but .co. And real quick, uh, just because, what is it that you're talking about on your podcast typically? Well, I have three. Home is Where the Hearth is podcast. I talk about whatever inspires me, so that could be on anything. Uh, obviously, faith and culture is, is, my, is my forte, so it's normally connected to that somehow or other. Uh, but I also do a Poem of the Week podcast, which in which I read and discuss the great poems of, of, of Western civilization. And I do a Revisiting Old Favorites podcast where I read um, from uh, my books and other people's books um, selectively and maybe comment upon them. So they're, they're the three po podcasts each week. And I write an essay called The Lady Dale Diary where I just sort of talk about whatever I want to talk about. Um, so so that, that, that's every week for the, for the Inner Sanctum on my web website. But yeah, also anything I've written anywhere gets posted on there. 
That's great. You know, just this week, I, I, I did a podcast, solo podcast, where I talked about kind of uh, the path forward for Catholics, how, how we should live in the sense. And, and I was talking a lot about having a balanced lifestyle, that we can't be constantly focused on the bad stuff going on in the church and, and that can lose our peace. But at the same time, we can't put our heads in the sand either and act like nothing wrong is going on. And I would just say, you know, at Crisis, we, the podcast, particularly, you know, my soul podcast often talks about scandals in the church, stuff like that. And I do think it's necessary. But I would just recommend people who listen to podcasts are like, oh, what are some practical things we can do? I think listening to Joseph's podcast is a, is a great way as well, because it gives a perspective of, of kind of the, the, the good and the beautiful going on in the world and I think in the church. And so I think that's that's a great way um, to, to maintain that balance, especially just from the, in the podcast role, so to speak, because, you know, let's be honest, the podcast that that. Um, that that kind of market in in scandal and all that do the best. I mean, I think we're we we all kind of know that that they're the most they end up being the most popular often. Uh, I don't think that's a healthy thing, but I think that's a reality. Uh, and so I think though having you know other podcasts as well like this. So I, I just want to recommend people go to jpierce.co, check out the podcast and the writings. I think that's a good way to kind of help help us all, and of course uh, get the book as well. Okay, well, Joseph, thank you. I, I appreciate it very much. Like I said, I'll have links to the book and also to your website uh, for everybody who's interested. Um, I, I just I appreciate all the work you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Eric, and also keep up the great work you're doing at Crisis Magazine because uh, what you, we are in times of crisis. I mean, history is usually a time of crisis. This is no different, and we do need people doing what you're doing. So you keep up the good work you're doing, and, and I would say also it's an honor to be counted amongst your senior editors and, and, and to be writing for you. Thank you. And that reminds me, you're right now in a series for us at Crisis on the unsung heroes of Christendom, which is a great idea because we think of the big saints and, and that's kind of how we, we look at things. But there's all these unknowns or relatively unknowns, not canonized saints, wherever, who have done great work. And so uh, every I think it's every other Wednesday we're putting out a uh, one of your articles on the unsung heroes. So check that out as well at Crisis Magazine. Okay, well, thank you very much. Until next time, everybody, God love you.